I'm John Burlingame. Welcome to Four Scores. In this podcast series, we're taking listeners on a magical journey into the world of film and television composers. In each episode, we'll go behind the curtain and speak with some of the most accomplished and iconic composers of our time. Until now, they've never had the opportunity to reveal to fans the special moments, the challenges, the emotional journeys of the music. All of that which truly transports us into another place, another world, another time. In this episode, we're speaking with Harry Gregson Williams, one of the most distinguished composers working in film today. You've heard his work in All Four Shreks, The Martian, and The Chronicles of Narnia. For the latter, he received both a Golden Globe and a Grammy nomination. We spoke to Harry at his comfortable studio on the outskirts of Los Angeles. His most recent score can be heard in the Disney nature documentary, Penguins. So, we're here in the Santa Monica studio of Harry Gregson Williams. Harry, thanks for having us over today. It's a pleasure. Do you need a certain kind of environment to be able to to be able to write comfortably, to be inspired. Tell us about the environment. Oh, I, th- I think so. I think I think any 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 composer, or probably any artist, or hey, most people, whatever line of work they're in, they need some sort of uh, some place where they can feel like they can can get the best out of themselves. I live in a kind of wooded area, and, and uh, you know, whenever I'm unsure of what I might be doing, I'll nip out of the studio and take a run through the uh, through through the park. We've known you in the past for such major films as Shrek and The Chronicles of Narnia and The Martian. But today, we want to talk about a Disney nature documentary about penguins. Mm-hmm. What attracted you to this project? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like penguins? Penguins are adorable animals. Um, these are deli penguins are quite little. They're not like the emperor penguins from The March of the Penguins, say, which are quite tall, apparently. Now, these are little ones, and uh, they're pretty mischievous. And they, they make for pretty natural comedy. And, of course, where they live makes for a naturally beautiful environment for the guys to shoot. So I love this project because, for the same reason, I loved Monkey Kingdom, actually, which is a previous one that I did with Disney Nature, um, because, really, there's nothing much for the music to battle against. There's a narrator, so a single voice, some penguins squawking about the place and music and music has a huge part in telling the story well let's talk for a second about doing documentaries generally mm-hmm. do documentaries require a different style or a different approach than composing for a narrative feature um yeah i think so um i think in, in a nature documentary is slightly different to to something concerning humans uh, um, you know, especially if, if the subject matter is, is grave or serious. And actually, what, one of the first things that uh, Alistair Fothergill, one of the two directors, said to me was that, um, you know, Harry, penguins don't smile. They can't. They don't have the muscles. Um, so you're going to have to do a lot of the smiling for us. Oh, that's uh, charming. Yeah, it was, actually. Um, and actually, he said that after he'd heard my main theme, which is kind of a march, um, as the as the penguins, uh, you see many, many of them uh, moving across the ice at the beginning of the film. And they were pretty clear they wanted something sort of upbeat and to reflect this uh, flood of penguin traveling across the ice. I thought I had exactly what I wanted. And I played, when they came to visit, I played them. They sat right, right where you are. And I played it and uh, they loved the music and they were very positive about it. But it was then that he made the comment, perhaps you can arrange this, this theme, and, and go ahead and do the score in a really colorful way. 
Given the fact that penguins are black and white, a lot of the images are uh, the snow. And consequently, I went into that march, which uh, at that time was a fairly standard orchestral arrangement, and switched out the bass line for an upright bass, switched out some low woodwinds I had for a saxophone quartet. And I took the lead, which had been on violins, off and planned to have the choir whistle the theme. Um, I had an amazing musician come in and play ukulele that powered and motored uh, the cue along. And suddenly it became very colorful. So in a very literal way, you took a kind of black and white film right. and added color to it right. via music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the directors I've been lucky enough to work with, Ridley Scott, you know, I, I guess after breakfast most days, he paints. He's a painter. I mean, that's, he went to art school yeah. to paint. And when I was working on The Martian with him, he told me that uh, I was trying to understand what he wanted from me. And I suddenly realized he was talking in art terms, like he was talking about texture and color, light and darkness. And these are all terms that we use in music. So suddenly I had a, a language. In, in this instance with penguins, it did take a throwaway comment about um, penguins not being able to smile and me having to do the smiling for them. Uh, take that pretty literally. And once I had that first cue in place and they'd heard it and uh, it definitely made them smile, you know, I was off and, and away. So it wasn't so much about the composition, the, the actual notes that I'd written. It was more about the arrangement, the delivery of that. And I'd never really had to think about that because usually in my music, I construct it in a way that, you know, for instance, I wouldn't play you a piece just on piano if it wasn't going to ultimately be on piano. I would wait until I had orchestrated it or arranged it for whatever, whether it was two bagpipes and an alto flute or whatever it was. So in this instance, I felt I'd, I'd got to where I needed to be, but in fact I hadn't. And it was more fleshing out uh, a fun arrangement and orchestration. Exactly, and fun was the word that came to mind when I was watching the movie, yeah. and the whistling came on, and I thought, <laughs> God, this is really fun. Well, it was fun. I don't know whether the choir would say that. They showed up to the choir session in Abbey Road and, uh, you know, thinking they were going to sing, and they, they did do some singing, but there was a little bit of a sort of muttering going on as they opened their pads and saw, you know, the instruction whistle in a joyful way. So we did little audition because a couple of them were really bad whistlers. Uh, actually, you know what? You can sit down during this cue. <laughs> um, but we didn't want it to be too perfect, anyhow. You didn't want it to be too perfect? No, I don't think so. I didn't, uh, it didn't need to be too polished, this score. It needed to be a little bit rugged at the edges. Um, and uh, that was something that I sensed and, and knew going into it. Just because, the, you know, our, our lead protagonist is, you know, Steve. He, the guy's not perfect at all. In fact, I, I saw quite a lot of similarities in, in myself, in him. You know, he's a father, uh, becomes a father, has to, <laughs> he has to work, how to work out how to deal with that. And he's kind of funny. Well, he's kind of like strange and, yeah, he's late uh, quite often. Uh, he's late to the party. Uh, but he has a certain um, je ne sais quoi and uh, gets, gets it done. True. <laughs> Which I hope that, that bit's the same as well. <laughs> So, Steve's the protagonist. Oh, yeah. He's the primary penguin, mm -hmm. but he also has a girlfriend. He does. Adeline. Mm -hmm. Do they require their own themes, yeah, their absolutely. own approach? Yeah, no, absolutely. Steve had his own, but where I started off thinking was um, kind of big city, New York, nothing to do with New York geographically, but, you know, this, this Steve guy, he's lost in a crowd of, of, uh, of people. And I don't know, I thought kind of Gershwin... Uh, Mm, I don't know, I th there's something about his theme that uh, I took some inspiration from 
Yeah, something something I think Gershwin-y about it. And then Adeline is, I hope, instantly recognizable, her theme, because whereas the march is, by its very nature, is in 4-4, four, four, you know, it's definitely one, two, three, four. Um, Adeline and the chicks that her and Steve ultimately have, have a piece that's in three. So it's more like a waltz. Mm. So it's quite feminine. So when you were discussing what kind of music yeah. you needed f- with your directors, did they... Uh, were they specifically looking for um, music that would personalize or humanize yes. somehow these characters? No, absolutely, John. They were very, very clear about that. And when they first came to me and showed me not even a rough cut, uh, because actually for the first eight months of working on the thing, there was a season missing and the film was about 20 minutes too short. And they explained that actually they were having to go back to Antarctica to catch summer. But they they were very specific about wanting the focus of the music to come in on Steve and his little journey, his journey to redemption, really. I mean, he found, um, you know, as I say, he was basically late to the party, had no clue what he was doing. But he grows into he grows into the job. Uh, and, and consequently, his theme could uh, will hopefully embolden him as the movie goes along and ends up with very positive and confident. What about the uh, geographic setting? Mm. Did you have to so- somehow set the uh, location right, musically? Right. The only geographical thing I recall we um, went after was the very first music that you hear in the film. And the first few lines of the narrator are something like Antarctica, the coldest, windiest, most, I don't know, uh, unpleasant place on the earth, something like that. And the filmmakers really wanted the music to start out kind of big and noble and then almost with a tape scratch but not quite it would go into this 80s song saying no 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 that's not the film you're about to see this is a quite different film that's kind of clever it was quite fun we uh, thought it might be a nice idea to have um, some music that related to each of the seasons so the same music would come on as spring came summer came um, and so forth the, not, not exactly the same music it wasn't a cut and paste but the same theme and orchestrated in a different way. So winter being kind of sparkly and cold, <laughs> more cold, uh, and summer opening up a bit and being lusher. Um, but it was the same series of notes. So thematically, we did go after that. You spoke about Steve's journey. Um, and of course, along the way, there's a certain amount of danger. Uh, there's killer whales oh, yeah. uh-huh. and there's sort of predatory seals. Yeah. Uh, oh, did yeah. you have to um, musicalize them somehow? Yeah, you know, in every film, however warm and fuzzy, there's going to be there's going to be darkness, um, just so that we can feel the light. And uh, there are some particularly nasty birds that come and steal penguin eggs um, that had to be seen off. And gradually, we meet some killer whales, and gradually we get to the denouement of the film, which involves the two chicks who are who are now. Growing up teenagers, we kind of call them, um, but they've got to cross some ice alone without their parents. And the ice is breaking up, and therefore there are small holes where very vicious-looking sea lions can come through. And we learn from the narrator that a sea lion can eat as many as 100 in a day, penguins. So we're really hoping these two chicks aren't two of those. So, yeah, the music's pretty dark and driving there. So does that mean that this wasn't all that different than scoring a narrative feature because there's a story to be told and and, and, and personalities at the heart? Right. Well, I think in that respect, John, I think it's very similar because, as you said, the essence of a, a, a score is the story that it tells or the story that it tries to amplify. If the story's 
being told literally by the narrator. The music doesn't have to necessarily channel that specifically, but can maybe mine the periphery and find stories that that, that aren't really on screen that uh, add add something to the uh, to the enjoyment of the the audience. But in a in a film like this, that's probably where the similarity ends because really I'm scoring Mulan at the moment, and you know it's a live action film. There's dialogue, a lot of it, um, and one has to weave and duck and dive around dialogue a lot. That's part of a film composer's job. That's not a negative thing, but in this film, there's just a narrator. There's one guy's voice, and because he's not seen. We can move him around a little bit. So, for instance, in, in one of the cues, I had this uh, motion on strings, and it was inextricably making for a downbeat, which had to be a downbeat, had to be where it had to be. And right at that second, the narrator had a couple of lines to say, and I thought, well, I guess I could add a couple of bars to my little build, or take a couple away so that I get there earlier or I get there later. Musically, it didn't really work. So I called up Alistair and said, look. Man, is there any possibility you could move the narrator? And he's like, of course, yeah, no problem. Now you couldn't do that in a live action film. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you get very odd looks. Do you think you could, um, yeah, just cut that person out of that scene there? <laughs> yeah. So we were able to do that because because they were very well aware that the music's playing a huge part in telling the story. So as long as the music's doing its job and it's working, then yeah, we could move things around. Not the picture; the picture stayed where it was. Right. But, you know, because the narrator is unseen, there's no lip sync or anything like that, we were able to jink things here and there and let the music have its natural ebb and flow. Sure. Which is one of the most gratifying things, and that's why it's, an, it's unusual. Um, it's unusual, and it's, it's lovely to work on a film like this. Yeah. Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Harry Gregson Williams' Penguins and the upcoming Mulan. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the soundtracks you love whenever you want. Uh, earlier, you mentioned what I thought were kind of unusual musical choices, a saxophone quartet mm-hmm. and ukuleles. Yeah. Why those choices and how do they play out in the score? <laughs> there are many, many other um, weird and wonderful, lovely textures kicking around in the score. I mean, at the heart, there's a big old orchestra right. and a large choir who sometimes whistle. Um, but yeah, there's, there's guitars of all sorts, acoustic, electric, as I said, the saxophones, ukuleles. These things were deployed not necessarily for character of a specific character, you know, a specific penguin, but more just for colors, as we've said. And uh, it was really nice to have that liberty. You know, going back to Milan, I'm, you know, I'm scoring Milan. I think I might raise a few eyebrows if I used a saxophone quartet. <laughs> <laughs> might be the last thing I ever do. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, that film is set in China, and it's quite clear that the music has to have at least some sense of that. Now, you know, Antarctica, what the heck does Antarctica sound like, apart from pretty windy? I, I don't know, actually. I used a lot of African and Thai, actually, ethnic flutes. I, they don't sound African in the context that I've used them. For instance, in one queue, when we, we see an extraordinary blizzard that, that, that actually wipes out half the colony. Um, 
it seemed like a pan pipe with its very, very, it's it's kind of frigid. And breathy. Kind yeah, of. breathy uh, tone. Seemed absolutely perfect. But hey, we weren't in South America. I don't know that we have uh, an idea of what Antarctica sounds like culturally, do we? Do we? I, I don't. <laughs> Maybe it sounds like a bunch of ukuleles and a saxophone quartet. I want to ask you also about humor. Um, how often did you need to sort of point up funny moments with your music, or is it better to keep away from funny moments? That's a very informed question, because I know that you know quite a bit about film music and you've studied these things. It's actually, I think, probably the hardest thing to do in a live-action film. The hardest thing to do is perhaps to, for the music to try and have a sense of humour and therefore increase the chances of the audience thinking something's funny. That's kind of tough. Here, a little bit simpler, because I didn't feel I had to shy away from that without debasing or, or, or uh, uh, neutering these poor poor uh, penguins. Also, you know, they're real fun to look at, so there's no problem trying to point out the comedy. Were there any particularly challenging moments or scenes that you had a hard time figuring out what to do? Um, yeah, I think the, the final sort of eight minutes of the film is pretty continuous music, and... It was really tough to know how dark to be. These sea lions, and I, honestly, when the first one comes up, these two chicks are trying to get across the ice, which is breaking up. So often the camera is underneath the ice, and you see the penguins, flappers, <laughs> what their feet are called, underneath, and they shouldn't be there. They should be on the ice. They're safe on the ice. But this obviously attracts the predators. First time you see one of these things come up out of the ice, it's pretty extraordinary. It looks like... Man, it looks like something from Alien. A really, really, uh, really quite grotesque and very scary. So musically, I went right in there. And actually, Alistair and Jeff they came back and said, ooh, hold on a second. We don't want to scare the children away. I think they can understand this is alarming. So alarming is good. Tense is good. But dead on scary? No, I don't think we're going to go there. I mean, it's in the picture anyhow, so I don't think we have to amplify that. So that was quite a difficult thing to find, the balance. Being dark enough uh, without scaring little children away. And I actually had the perfect um, sort of litmus test for that. I have small children myself. Did you show them this? I certainly did. My three-year-old went running out of the studio, barely to be seen again that day. So I knew I'd missed the mark a bit there. So yeah, I'd pull back a bit. But uh, having said that, they all came to the first screening of the film, I guess we must have got the balance right because no one left screaming. <laughs> <laughs> is that one of the reasons you do these films? Is well, because you have absolutely. kids? Absolutely. You know, what do you think? I, I mean, going back to, it must be a coincidence, but what? no, it couldn't have been a coincidence. The first film that Hans... Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer asked me to, you know, I was minding my own business in London, <laughs> vaguely, uh, <laughs> when he called me and said, look, you've got to come out here and assist me on, I've got just the movie for you. What was it? It was a Disney movie, Muppet Treasure Island. So what does that say about what he thought about me? <laughs> yeah, no, I'd spent years teaching, as you know, John. Children have been part of my life since before I had my own. I've always wanted to have a bunch of them. And uh, I'm one of five, and I have five. Wow, that's great. Mm. And you were a boy chorister, weren't mm. you? I yes. mean, as a kid. I was hoping you weren't going to bring that up. Oh, yeah. no. But I keep thinking, that probably informs your choral writing. Yeah, well, I would hope so. Gosh, go have some advantage from it. <laughs> yes, you know, when I when I got hired to do Kingdom of Heaven, I thought, well, here we go. Here we go. Got heaven in the title. 
but yeah, no, I mean, I, I love my choral writing and it's not always uh, going to happen in a score. It's not always appropriate. I have a heavenly choir, but wherever it is, you know, I, I really love to, to do that. And where did you record the score for Penguins? Uh, at Abbey Road Studios in London. The, uh, the lovely thing for me is that when I get up there, the downbeat of the first day of the first session, you know, most of the work's done for me. You know, most of the, most of the agonizing work which is here in the studio. Yeah, which is here in the studio and, you know, trying to play catch-up for picture changes and, and you know, missing the mark occasionally and having to double back and redo something. But, you know, that's just life. But once it's all down and orchestrated and it's sitting on the stand and everybody's there at 10 a.m. Uh, and the downbeat of the first piece, when I look around, a lot of these people were at music college with me. You know, they're my peers, my oh, contemporaries. Christ. Yeah, um, Absolutely. Not everybody conducts their own scores, but you do. Why? That's a perfectly good question. Why do I? Um, I'll tell you why. Um, back in the day, when I first came over to, to work with Hans, he, he doesn't and didn't conduct his scores. And I really fancied it. I mean, I'd been to music college, but I'd never taken conducting lessons. And I remember saying to Hans, look, could I conduct this Muppet thingy? And he's like, well, sure. I was going to have to hire someone, but now you can just do it. Uh, I said, but Hans, I haven't really done much of this. He's like, well, for God's sake, no one knows the music better than you. He said, I'm sure you'll get the hang of it. A film composer conducting his score. Well, a couple of things to mention. Firstly, film composer is going to have headphones on, and inside those headphones is going to be a very distinct click. And the whole orchestra have the same click. So that is the tempo of the piece. So it's unnecessary for a film composer conducting his score to flap his arms around trying to keep the orchestra in time because they have the beat as well as you do. They know it. So what are you doing there? A massive amount, but just not that. It's more eye contact and knowing that, you know, I'll beat vaguely with my right hand, um, but knowing, like, in the march, you know, there's a couple of muted trumpets come in. I'll catch their eye two bars before, three, there. So I'll, I'll give them a cue in, although they don't actually need the cue, but also a lot of trying to bring the emotion in and out of what you're trying to achieve. You know, the, I mean, a lot of people, um, a lot of very successful people don't conduct their own music, like, for instance, Hans. He still gets the feelings that he wants, and he gets it a different way. He'll sit in the control room and have um, a bloke like me go and wave his arms around, and there'll be a lot of communication, not necessarily to the conductor, but straight to those trumpets. Uh, can you come in a bit quieter, please? Or whatever, he'd give a lot of instruction like that. Um, whereas I, I'd like to do it on the stand, cut out the middleman. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's 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 hugely um, uh, fortunate position to be in. So do you have a favorite moment uh, in terms of the music or a scene in Penguins? Yeah, I do actually. And it's spring break. No, <laughs> it's a cue that we call spring break. Um, the narrator says Steve's waddling down a hill, um, and there's a bustle and an energy from the colony miles out on the ice there are some holes appearing spring is coming and they just feel like a break they're going to go for a swim and a whole mass of them take off across the ice and the music had this sort of bustle and rustle to it which was great fun to do great fun and then the camera pulls back and one see the, the enormity of the landscape and uh, the numbers of penguins making for this tiny little bit of water and as soon as they get there they disappear in um, so the music reflected all those things I think and a great reminder of how important music can be in storytelling. Yeah, oh, it's, it's really awesome. A film like Penguins is, um, is an absolute delight to compose for. 
Thanks for joining us in this episode of Four Scores. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think. Leave us a review and tune in for the rest of the season. We're talking to so many incredible composers you won't want to miss a single episode. Watch Penguins and listen to the soundtrack wherever movies and music are enjoyed. Four Scores is brought to you by Disney Hits, the happiest music playlist on earth. Over 60 of the most beloved songs from classic Disney films, curated weekly into one magical music playlist. Disney Hits has something for everyone and is available on all major music streaming services. It's as easy as asking your preferred voice-activated device to play Disney Hits. And to enjoy the music even more, get your hands on collectibles from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm at DisneyMusicEmporium.com.